the Upper Cumberland is filled with rich history that helped to shape our country to what we live in today. Join Abbott historian Troy Smith as he will tell you tales of characters and events that happened in your backyard. Mountain True starts now. Hello, my name is Troy Smith. I'm an associate professor of history at Tennessee Tech, and this is Mountain True, where we talk about local Upper Cumberland history, and specifically um, looking at ways in which the things that have happened here have been connected to the bigger picture nationally. And today, we're going to look at a practically uh, forgotten uh, incident way back in 1947 in Sparta, Tennessee, uh, which was a strike at the Milan Manufacturing Company, later known as the Sparta Shirt Factory. Um, previously, I talked some about the United Mine Workers and their efforts to, to organize throughout the uh, South and uh, uh, Southern Appalachia and in, in the Upper Cumberland, how that was kind of slowed down by events that uh, had taken place in the 1920s and then again in the 30s with the strike at Wilder. But now we're going to see how that connects in to the stuff that happened at the shirt factory. But first, just to kind of set the stage, we have to bear in mind the time period we're talking about. Uh, this all starts actually 1946, actually starts in 1945, uh, right after the end of World War II. So lots of, uh, lots of young men were returning home after having been away for a long time. Uh, and that's obviously going to affect the labor market. It did affect the labor market nationally. Uh, and it's going to have an effect in, in Sparta. Now, another thing that we're going to have to uh, look at before we sort of zoom in on the micro level is something that was happening throughout the South that involved not just United Mine Workers, but the uh, American Federation of Labor, which they were a part of, the AFL, and, and also the CIO. They hadn't joined uh, together yet. Um, that would be a few years. But uh, these were two large labor organizations that each, independently at the time, was making a push to organize and try to unionize in the South. Now, most of the labor unions in the country were in the other parts of the country. It had never really taken hold in a big way in the South. And this was becoming problematic for um, these uh, labor organizations because, well, uh, there were, in all these Southern states where there were practically no unions, um, politicians were not feeling any pressure uh, to address the issues of workers or, or labor issues. So the hope was get more unions in the South and put more pressure on Southern politicians and then nationally try to uh, improve the situation. Uh, there was a name for this. It was called Operation Dixie. And throughout 1946 and 47 and into 48, there were union organizers coming down to the South from other parts of, of the country to try to, as one person put it, uh, unionize everything in sight, or at least try to. In some cases, there were people who had been involved in 
United Mine Workers in the South in those efforts to organize in the coal mines who were still operating, uh, who were in the South and sort of uh, not only were didn't have far to go to participate in this, but you knew the culture. Uh, and so a couple of those individuals were sent to Sparta to work on trying to organize at the local at the local shirt factory. I want to point out now that uh, this we're talking about events that happened seventy plus years ago. Um, there are still some people alive uh, who were who were a part of this, and certainly, uh, if not uh, people who directly participated, children and grandchildren. So what I'm going to do in this discussion is I'm going to avoid using a lot of names other than the principal players who showed up in the newspaper a lot. So one name that I am going to use is one of those two organizers that was sent. Um, member of the United Mine Workers, his name was uh, Silas Huddleston. And... Uh, he had a very long association with UMW. He and his, uh, he and his partner came and, and met with the people that worked at uh, the shirt factory uh, and worked on trying to organize a union to set up uh, um, the means to have a vote taken uh, among the workers as to whether they wanted to unionize. And the first step was to appoint officers, or to elect, rather, officers uh, for uh, this union in, in the shirt factory. And so they, they did that. Some people stepped forward and uh, uh, took on those roles. And there was a meeting in 1945, uh, in the spring, uh, in which Huddleston uh, and uh, at least one other organizer met with several of the people who were primarily uh, taking leadership roles and trying to uh, unionize the shirt factory. Several of them were women, a large percentage of the workers, which the, the number of workers there is, number of workers there varied uh, from year to year from uh, five to 700 uh, during that time period. Now, let's step back for a moment and take a look at the factory and its its place in, in the community. The, uh, the owner of, of the factory um, had been, well, he'd been trying to get, the, to get local businessmen, in, including uh, people who were in the Chamber of Commerce, which had just recently been formed in Sparta, and the mayor, um, to participate uh, in putting together a building committee to raise funds to build houses because he said that part of the reason he couldn't get enough workers was that there wasn't enough housing in Sparta, enough adequate housing, and that if more homes were built, then more workers would be attracted. Because a lot of people were, who lived in near Sparta were working in other surrounding towns, even though Sparta was closer, um, because of the housing situation. They, they were able to, to move there. He also... Um, built a, uh, uh, an addition uh, to the factory, a kind of a separate business that was really part of the overall business. It was a box factory. So in the, the, the factory, they were making dress shirts and later pajamas, I think. 
And then they were also manufacturing the boxes to ship these things in. Uh, so uh, this was a big investment for a lot of people in the town. There was also some, some ill feeling toward unions as a result of what had happened in the 1930s, not, not just in uh, Wilder in that uh, very violent strike that we talked about, but in White County there were, there were strikes, uh, and eventually, uh, eventually several of the mines closed down uh, rather than recognize uh, unions, allow them to be, to be unionized. So there was a feeling that bringing in more unions would endanger uh, the jobs that were there. And on the other hand, there was a lot of feeling from, from workers, not just at the factory, that um, they were being taken advantage of, they weren't being paid well enough. There were complaints about the working conditions at the factory. Um, just one example of uh, problems with working conditions is uh, they didn't have a break room at that time. So the workers, and again, most of them were uh, women from uh, White County, uh, the workers, when they took their lunch break, had to go sit outside and eat their lunch. And if it was raining, they had to eat their lunch in the public restroom. Uh, so that's, that's just one of uh, many things they were complaining about. Well, when the UMW uh, organizers were meeting with, with these folks, um, they got their list of officers together, the... Uh, Huddleston uh, and his partner uh, left, saying they were going to return soon, and they never showed back up. Turns out uh, Huddleston was uh, was arrested and transported out of the county. He was actually taken to Cumberland County uh, and then put out of the uh, uh, sheriff's, uh, the deputy's car, and told not to come back uh, to White County. Um, so... Nothing much happened uh, for a while after that until a few months later when a complaint was made to the National Labor Relations Board, the NLRB, um, complaint that the, uh, the owners of the factory, sort of supported by uh, some of the members of the Chamber of Commerce, uh, had intimidated the workers uh, to prevent them from from unionizing. Now, in addition to the uh, uh, mine workers guy being taken out of the county, uh, several people were fired, either fired or their hours were cut to the point that uh, they weren't able to keep working. And these were all the people who were sort of the, uh, the, the leaders of the movement to, to organize. So the NLRB comes with these charges and they have hearings at the uh, courthouse in the Sparta Square, uh, hearings that, uh, according to the newspaper, hundreds of people were trying to squeeze in and were th thronging about in the square outside wanting to know how this was going to turn out. Um, ultimately, the, uh, the ruling came back that uh, the, uh, the factory owner and, and the, uh, the businessmen were, in fact, um, guilty of, of the charge of intimidating the workers to prevent them from, from organizing. Uh, eventually, um, the charges, uh, well, on appeal, 
the thing eventually uh, went away, but at least initially, uh, it it was uh, seemed like a, a victory for the people who wanted to organize. So they took another uh, opportunity, another try. In 1946, the, they took a vote. They got to take an actual vote, and it fell short. Uh, and so there was no union. And the next year, uh, they they tried again. Now, meanwhile, this Operation Dixie was in full swing, and there were union organizing activities taking place, not just at the shirt factory, but in several businesses, several businesses in White County and in surrounding counties throughout the Upper Cumberland. Finally, uh, in the uh, summer of 1947, um, actually late summer, September, um, there was a walkout uh, staged by some of the workers at the factory. Um, And then a vote was taken, and this time 90% of the workers uh, signed on to the union. Uh, They were asking at this point uh, for um, better working conditions, uh, a raise, uh, and for their union to be recognized. Well, it was was a tense time because uh, the the owners just did not approve uh, of the very idea of allowing a union. There were well, the the community was divided. Uh, some people supporting uh, the the workers in this case, and then other people harking back to what I was talking about earlier, kind of being scared uh, that what had happened with coal mines would happen and the factory would shut down and and move elsewhere. Um, the newspaper was regularly carrying uh, letters from from citizens and editorials uh, by the. Uh, uh, people at the the paper uh, that uh, stated some very strong opinions about what was going on. Uh, eventually, this this involved more than stating strong opinions. Uh, on one occasion, a scuffle broke out between the striking workers and the small number of workers who initially were continuing uh, continuing to work. Eventually, the the factory was shut down uh, and didn't open back up until January. So. Almost four months this went on. But there was a scuffle uh, called in the newspaper, a quote, a hair-pulling affair that involved several of the women, uh, as well as a thumping, according to the paper, um, in which uh, you know the people who were still working uh, were uh, sort of, well, again, scuffling uh, with the, uh, the people who were on the picket line. The seven people... Uh, Six people. Six people were arrested as a result of this. Um, later on, uh, there was an even bigger uh, confrontation. Uh, it started uh, when word had gotten out that the uh, then president of the Chamber of Commerce had uh, made some made some very assertive statements, some very negative statements about the union. And uh, over a hundred really angry, striking Sparta women marched down Shirt Factory Hill, as it's still called there today, marched down to the square, uh, whereupon they sort of um, moved through several local businesses whose owners were members of the Chamber of Commerce and essentially beat the crap out of several of them. Well, uh, 
They chased uh, one uh, female employee out of a sandwich shop and closed down the shop. Um, they they beat up uh, one of the co- one of the chamber members, broke his glasses and blacked his eye. Um, they uh, beat up another local business owner, uh, and in this case, um, it doesn't come right out and say so in the newspaper reports. It said that uh, negative things were said about his religion that a religion that he shared with the factory owner. Uh, so essentially, uh, these two businessmen were Jewish, and so there was some uh, ugly anti-Semitism going on. Uh, in addition to these really angry ladies just uh, whomping on uh, these businessmen, um, according to the paper, quote, police were impotent before the crowd, and I bet they were too. Uh, I can't even uh, imagine because, you know, when I was when I was a kid, I knew some of these ladies that were older by that time. And so you get about 100 of them together and stir them all up. It would have been a it would have been a bad scene. Uh, and indeed, it was several of them were arrested, although the charges were later dropped. Uh, also, in the newspaper, there were complaints by some local people that some of the men who were on strike were wearing their military uniforms, uh, thinking that, uh, you know, striking is a communist, un-American thing to do, uh, so they shouldn't be wearing their uniform. Well, you know, the other uh, the other side of the equation was, the other argument was that, uh, you know, a labor activity is an American right, uh, and it's what they had fought for in those uniforms. Uh, eventually, there was, uh, uh, well, there were calls for them to be arrested for wearing their uniforms, and that never that never happened. However, one of the UMW organizers who was there, um, sort of spearheading this whole thing, was uh, was arrested for carrying a handgun. Uh, then there was another scuffle. Some more people were uh, arrested for fighting. Two men were arrested for quote blackguarding and using bad language. Uh, so. Uh, it was uh, it was a pretty tense situation. Uh, eventually, uh, an agreement was reached, and the factory opened back up in in January. Uh, the workers came back with a ten percent raise, uh, and life uh, then continued as normal. Um, the Operation Dixie kind of fell apart. It didn't get very far. Um, in large part because they were working against the culture, the regional uh, tradition uh, of uh, not supporting unions. Also, the an issue that they they ran into, not so much in the Upper Cumberland but other places, was because of the Jim Crow laws. It was difficult to get the white and black workers in a situation where they could work together uh, on these types of things. So, anyway, uh, all that was connected in a, lot, uh, in a lot of ways back to the coal mining things because it wasn't just a labor issue, but it was United Mine Workers operatives uh, who were involved in, in both cases. And that's where we now will be able to take that kind of obscure 1947 uh, event in Sparta and tie it to something national, something that happened much later. So we're going to go forward in time more than two decades. We're going to go to 1969. Um, the president of the United Mine Workers uh, at that time and for a long time 
had been Tony Boyle. Um, he had uh, a uh, an opponent in the election uh, for uh, keeping his his role as president. His opponent was a guy named Jock Yablonski, who lived in Pennsylvania, and Yablonski was a uh, a reform candidate. He was he was running in opposition to uh, uh, long-serving uh, President uh, Tony Boyle, um, claiming that uh, Boyle was corrupt and that he was closely connected with several mob figures. Um, an election was held, and Boyle managed to win, but Yablonski claimed that uh, that there was some corruption involved here in how the election was carried out. Uh, and he uh, swore out, uh, or he was going to, he said he was going to swear out a complaint about that. Now, uh, the UMW president, it turns out, had a meeting with several of his uh, high, uh, high-level uh, uh, minor, not my, yeah, uh, officials. Let's strike that last sentence. Turns out, uh, Tony Boyle had a meeting with uh, several uh, of his operatives, uh, including a guy who was in. Um, uh, high up in the uh, the regional UMW in, in Tennessee, and it was uh, it was pretty much decided at this meeting that Jock Yablonski had to die. Well, was Tony Boyle extremely corrupt and connected to the mob? The fact that he decided to kill the person who said he was might give us some indication, right? Uh, what does all this have to do with Sparta? Well, they were trying to decide who was going to do it. And the guy who was there from Tennessee said, if nobody else will do it, I know somebody that will do it. And that somebody was Silas Huddleston, the very same individual um, who had uh, organized the uh, Sparta Shirt Factory strike in Sparta back in 1947. There, were, there had been rumors that um, throughout his career, uh, Huddleston had been involved in a lot of altercations. Uh, apparently, back in the 1940s, as the UMW was trying to organize shirt factories throughout the South, other unions were trying to do the same thing. Um, and sometimes this led to uh, fistfights, beatings. One guy was uh, from another union was actually shot. Uh, but uh, I think that... Uh, I think it was a date book or something that he had in his in his coat kept him from being killed. Uh, so anyway, Silas Huddleston had been involved in uh, as as some people might say some some hinky stuff for a long time, uh, and sure enough, he was he was willing to to be involved in this. Um, he did not travel to Pennsylvania personally. He was he was retired. Uh, what he did was um, he got his son-in-law to take charge of the actual assassination of Jock Yablonski. His son-in-law picked up another couple of guys, and they did. They went up to Pennsylvania, and late one night, they went to Jock Yablonski's house while he was sleeping and killed him and his wife and his daughter while they were sleeping in their beds. And turns out, 
they they left a beer can in the snow outside the house with their fingerprints on it, uh, from which the FBI was able to to track them down, find out, uh, uh, follow sort of the chain, and find out ultimately that uh, this had been ordered by by Tony Boyle. Uh, the actual uh, assassins wound up with uh, uh, the death penalty. Uh, Tony Boyle was sentenced to life in prison. Uh, the guy who had volunteered, uh, uh, Silas Huddleston, uh, the other Tennessee guy, he got uh, consecutive life sentences. Uh, Huddleston and his daughter uh, turned state's evidence and were put into witness protection. So, you know, no one knows where they wound up or what happened to them. Um, at that time, by the way, Huddleston was living in La Follette. Uh, I read through the report of the FBI agents who did the investigation, uh, and they were talking about how unusual it was for them. I mean, they were FBI agents in the 1970s. Um, to go around asking questions uh, about somebody and having guns pulled on them continually. Uh, on one occasion, uh, the FBI agent had to uh, disarm a coal miner in the mines that he had gone to talk to. So anyway, that's kind of that's a very sordid story. Uh, obviously, got this whole family killed in their sleep. But it is a very interesting connection, a series of uh, connected events that can be traced back through the decades uh, to various uh, labor activities that happened right here in, in the Upper Cumberland. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Mountain True. Download your favorites and keep up with new episodes in the Henson Oakley Podcast Center. 